right. Good morning. Good morning. So just to be a bit cruel, I am going to ask you to stand for the reading of Holy Scripture this morning. <laughs> um, it's your morning aerobics, if you will. And um, I am going to bring, uh, if you want to join in, I am going to bring something that we do at uh, my church, which is after the reading of Scripture, um, I will say the word of the Lord, and in response, if you can say, thanks be to God, if only if you want to. So our reading of the law this morning is this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That is from Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Our scripture reading for today's sermon is out of Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths wag at me and they wag their heads. They trust it. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you took me from, my, from the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Four dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, help me, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth 
of the lion. You have rescued me, me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will praise you. I, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. When you come, from you comes praise, my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families and nations shall worship before you. For the king belong, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship before him, uh, shall bow down and go down to the dust, even those who could not keep themselves alive. Posterity shall serve him, it shall be told of the Lord in coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The word of the Lord. All right, so good morning. Um, you may be seated, and I'll pray for us. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that we can gather and worship you. We gather and we behold this wonderful psalm that you gave to David. Father, we, we thank you for your son who died on the cross for us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that he provides, the joy that he provides, and the hope of resurrection that he has won for us. And so, Father, I pray for the congregation and for myself that we may behold your word, that we may see anew wondrous things in it. And Father, for any of those who are struggling, for any of us who are struggling in faith or in doubt or with depression or sickness, Lord, please be with us. And Father, encourage us to love you more. Help us to see you more. And we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that we may delight in you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So, what we have before us in this psalm this morning is a prophecy of Christ. For if you recall from your Old Testament readings, uh, David was not only a king, but a prophet of God. And in Psalm 22, we find the unique miracle of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. We find that David foresees an event happening a thousand years before his time with remarkable clarity. Sometimes we read the prophets and we are confused. We read Ezekiel and we are not sure what to make of it. And sometimes we read Jeremiah, and we're not sure what to make of it. But when we come to this prophecy, the referent is wonderfully 
and crystally clear who it is. It is our Lord and his passion. And for in this psalm, we perhaps get the clearest, the clearest and most detailed explanation of our Lord's suffering on the cross. It exceeds that of even what we get in the Gospels themselves. They are, the Gospels look at it as an outsider, someone who's looking upon Christ. The psalm is looking at it from an inside perspective of someone of Christ himself. If you will, what Christ saw through his very eyes, what he experienced in his very inner being to die for us. And not only that, but in this psalm, we see the humanity of Christ. We see Christ, the humility of Christ. We see the atonement of Christ. And we see the triumph of Christ. If you will, this psalm functions as a nexus of everything in the Bible, as a central train station, if you will. It combines promises from old that were made to Abraham that that one day one of his seed would be a blessing to the nations, and it projects us forward into the passion event, and indeed it projects us forward even to the very end of our own history on this earth. However, I'm afraid that the familiarity with this psalm has not so much bred contempt, but complacency in our lives We read the psalm. We do not read it with the same fascination and astonishment and love and horror that we did when we first laid our eyes upon it. No, we have busied ourselves with work and contemporary events, with religious activities and academic matters and Easter celebrations, and we thereby have removed ourselves far from the psalm. Yes, we honor it with our lips, but our hearts are indeed far from it often. And in other words, our hearts have grown cold. I'm reminded of a poem by uh, Christina Rossetti, a great English poet of the 1800s which expresses this sentiment, and perhaps this is the sentiment of some of you. I know it is a sentiment that I have experienced myself, even indeed in preparing for this sermon. She says this, I am a stone and not a sheep, that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross and number drop by drop thy blood slow loss, and yet not weep, Not so those women loved, who with exceeding grief lamented thee. Not so fallen Peter, weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and the moon, which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I, give not over, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock, 
greater than Moses, turn and look once more and smite a rock. Thus, this is my hope for this morning. As we journey into the way of Golgotha, as we journey into the way of the cross, that our Lord would turn and once again smite a rock, not in order that we may be wounded permanently, but in order that we may be healed, that we may see Christ anew, that we may see this very text anew. And so with that in mind, let us proceed. So in verse 1, we find our familiar words of our Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But perhaps we've never stopped to really consider what is going on when he is pronouncing this on the cross. And maybe if we have, we've only, we know it's a reference to Psalm 22, but we're not quite sure all that's going on. And so let's, let's kind of go through the, a few things, a few observations that we can make. So I don't know how many of uh, you have been to synagogue, but for most Jewish people, this would be a recognizable phenomenon. My Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is reminiscent of what's called a Parsha. A Parsha is this, um, before we had chapter and verse, the Jews would actually keep track of their readings, their reading schedules, through actually an opening phrase that identifies the whole passage. And in doing so, you can say, leka, leka, and you're referring to a passage in Genesis. And so if you talk to a Jew and you say, leka, leka, which sounds kind of funny, um, he would know, oh, he's referring to, I believe it's like Genesis chapter 20-something. Um, he, that I'm referring to that general section. And then I would proceed to talk about what that section was saying and what I was getting out of it. And in this very same way, our Lord actually in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is telling to the reader and signaling to the listener that this psalm speaks of my death. This psalm speaks of me. This psalm is what is going on now. And so, so that's the first kind of level of what's going on. Christ is asking us to look at this psalm and he, because he is saying, this is about me. Read this psalm. The second aspect, and this is what we understand from not only Christ's life, but we understand from the psalm itself. The psalm the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not a prayer of unbelief. That God has that suddenly Jesus on the cross has suddenly lost confidence in God, has lost confidence in the Father. It's actually precisely the opposite. It's precisely the opposite from that. Because what we see here in this psalm, and as we'll see as we move through, is that we are, that the psalmist projecting Christ, seeing Christ, David, knowing that Christ would suffer this. Christ is in this very moment 
calling to God because he knows God's faithfulness. He knows the faithfulness of God for those who call out to him. And so in this moment, we should actually be astonished. We should be shocked that God is not answering because God has answered the prayers of pagans, as we saw last time I was here with the, with the sailors calling out to him. He, call, he answered the prayers and the cries of Hezekiah when he was flanked by the Assyrian Empire and Sennacherib's forces. And most notably, God answered the cries and the calls of his people in Egypt when they were in slavery. And so here we should be shocked to find that this righteous sufferer, our Lord Jesus, is not being answered. In fact, he's being treated like an enemy. He's being treated like an enemy We can reaccount in Psalm 18 when it talks about David being pursued by Saul and Saul's companions, that Saul's companions, they cried out for help and there was none to save them. They cried out to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Actually, in this very passage, we find that our Lord is being treated like an enemy, not like one of his people. Yet, this prayer of our Lord proceeds with trust. Let us look at verses 3 to 4. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trust it. They trust it, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Even on the cross, our great rabbi, Jesus, our Lord, was teaching us. He was teaching us to look back at the past. He was just as he was doing, entrusting that God would deliver him. He looked back at the past to see what God would do in the future. This is, um, there's no doubt that he not only looked at this whole sweep of Israel's history, but he looked at deliverances even in his earthly ministry that God gave him. And what he is instructing us to do here and what he's in teaching us like any great teacher does is even on the cross, he does not deny God, but he trusts that God's good and looks at God's deliverances from the past to have confidence in a future deliverance. We can th- actually think about this. This is actually at the very center of our faith. Let's recall the words of our sacrament, the sacrament of communion. Do this in remembrance of me, looking back. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, looking back until he comes. In there, you have the whole sweep of history. And as we'll see as the psalm progresses, 
is that this salvation, as we look back at the salvation, the, the nations will look back, Israel will look back and rejoice. But we'll hold that till the end. However, despite the faith, the surety of God's goodness and his faithfulness, we're met with a great reversal here. Because in the very next verse, Jesus says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. I can't think of anything more dramatic, more real than the humility that Christ suffered on the cross. Our Lord, the great I am, the I am of the Exodus, the I am of John, who said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, now says, I am a worm, trodden down by men who cast insults at him, Men he created, he foreknew. He was lowered to the lowest creature that we can fathom, a worm. Yet he took this derision and let insults be hurled at him like he trusts in God, let God deliver him now for he desires him. He did it for us. Not only that we may have life in him, but that we may learn from him again. And yet this, and thus this psalm teaches us another great lesson of humility. We can think of Paul's words, looking back at the cross. And Paul in Philippians is using the cross as a teaching tool, as an instructive device that for us not to be selfish, for us to consider the others before ourselves, to not only consider our own interests. And so Paul says this in Philippians, though Jesus was found in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, being humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this great psalm, Jesus teaches us his humility, being Lord of the universe. And we are called to do likewise. And as the psalm progresses, Jesus' trust is reaffirmed again and showing that he's in continuity with all the faithful cries of Israel. He says in verse 9 and 10, yet you, he, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust my mother's breast, and on you I was cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. 
So again, this prayer, this call out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is not one of unbelief, but utter horror and shock because of the severity of the trial of his suffering was great. And we're reminded of, of Isaiah here that Christ speaking through the prophet says, the Lord called me from my womb and from the body of my mothers he named my name to bring back Israel and to be the light of the nations. And so in this, even in this trust, we can see that Christ was cognizant, was aware of his very mission. And in this mission, though, it could not be accomplished without being plunged into darkness. I think most of us are probably realize or have probably come to see over the course of our lives that often darkness produces the most fruit. It's not in times of ease. It's not in times of relaxation that we grow. It is often in times of distress and anguish. And how much more true is this in the life of our Lord that he had to be plunged into the darkness of crucifixion, into the darkness of torture, and he had to be abandoned. For we read, be not far from me, this is in verse 11, for trouble is near and there is none to help. In this hour of darkness, he's no longer flanked by fawning crowds, He's abandoned by his disciples. He's betrayed by Peter. And he's forsaken by God. And just as we're to imitate Christ in his humility, we also imitate him in this as well to a far lesser degree but I don't know, but I imagine many of you when you became Christians have experienced a taste of this. Um, I was at one time quite popular at university and, uh, and uh, becoming a Christian kind of hindered that popularity and brought that to a screeching end and I was forsaken and left alone by all my friends. And I'm sure many of you have the same experiences. Indeed, when I talk to other Christians, that comes to an end. People who you thought were trustworthy were going to be your long-standing friends leave you. But how much more did this happen to Christ? And so our little instances of this are just a picture, are just pointing to the greatest instance of this. And so... Christ gives us the Christ gives us the expansion he describes to us in verses 12 through 21 which are there's two sections 12 through 15 and then 16 through 21 that should actually be taken together they're not to be read in this linear manner they're meant to be read as 
poetry and as a collective holistic view of his sufferings on the cross. And so let's start with verse 12 and we'll go through 15. This is the darkness. Many bowls encompass me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. It is easy, and I know it's easy because I have done this myself, to think that Christ's sufferings on the cross were not real because he was both truly man and truly God, and somehow he pushed the truly God button, and so his sufferings weren't real. But the doctrine of the incarnation and the scriptures testify the complete opposite. They're as real as you can get. He lost blood being poured out like water. He suffered psychological trauma. His bones are dislocated because of the position he is on the cross. And he suffers dehydration. Any one of these, any one of these would make us moan and cry. And he suffered all of them. And he was laid in the dust of death for us. Let's continue and look at the reiteration or the expansion of this darkness that he suffered in verses 16 through 21. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Again, our Lord allowed himself to be subjected to real pain by men who pierced his hands and his feet, by men whose muscles he created, by men whose arms who were used to drive those nails into his hands and feet that he foreknew, he fashioned. And yet he took the place of a servant. He was humiliated for our behalf. And he died for those who nailed him to that cross. He died for those 
who conspired against him. For the very men that gave him such agony, who gave him real suffering, he died. Yet, at this point, I'm reminded of a passage from James. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Because in this moment, at this point of death, both Christ and the Father are vindicated. In 21b through 22, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name among my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Despite all the shame, despite the humiliation, despite God forsaking him, both Christ is seen as being the righteous king of the world, the righteous king of Israel, and God is seen to be faithful Faithful once again, faithful as he was to the Israelites in Egypt, faithful as he was to Hezekiah in Judah, and faithful to the sailors who called out to him that God answered the call of our righteous king. And here we are... All the petitions that were made to God, were made to the Father, were answered. And he answered them to demonstrate his love, his look upon humanity that they would call out and know him. And we also see here a wonderful fulfillment of this in Matthew that says that when Jesus arises from the grave, and talks to the women outside the tomb. He says, do not be afraid and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, as we draw towards the end of this psalm, there's something I want to very carefully note. And this is, a, this is something that can be easily overlooked because David actually kind of sneaks back in at the end of the psalm And we forget that these psalms are actually liturgy. They are actually what the Israelites sung in the temple. This is what they may have sung different psalms when they went up to the temple. This was, as you will, like their worship music. And so this liturgy is prophetic in nature. Something being liturgy and being sung is not opposed to actually being prophetic. And so, just to give you a contemporary example, when we sing Joy to the World, lamentably it's almost always sung at Christmas, um, we are actually singing about Christ's second coming. That song is about Christ's second coming. And in an uninspired way, but a true way, it is a prophecy that Christ will return for that event hasn't happened. And just as David prophesied about Christ in verses 1 through 21, the ones that we just reviewed. Now David steps in and actually gives his original hearers 
and gives us the significance of these events. What will this person who's suffering, who we know as Christ, the only person that this psalm can possibly refer to, what will this accomplish? And so David says this. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Praise him for the deliverance. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. The afflicted one there is the person that was being referred to in the beginning of the psalm. It is Christ. And he's commanding Israel to praise the Lord, for he has not despised the afflicted of the afflicted the affliction of the afflicted, but he heard, he has heard when he cried to him. He has not hidden his face from him. And so he's, David's commanding Israel before Christ even comes to praise this coming Messiah who would suffer and die. It is a feast time for Israel. And then David focuses himself back takes the focus back to him and he says from you comes my praise in the great congregation my vows I will perform before those who fear him and so David seeing this the Lord Yahweh becomes not only the source of praise but the object because Yahweh the father has saved Christ and he, because of that salvation, David offers prayers, praise, and vows. And this is perhaps one of the most stunning parts of this whole verse, and perhaps the most stunning for our Jewish friends and acquaintances. Because the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise to the shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What is hard to detect in the English text that we have before us is that the, the afflicted in verse 26 is plural, not singular, as in verse uh, 24. And the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. This section is focused upon Israel. We will get to us, Gentiles, in David's next proclamation to follow, but for now he's focusing on Israel, that this is a great fulfillment for her, for the people, for the Jews. And I'm friends with a number of Jews in town, I actually even go to a Orthodox synagogue on Saturdays. And they're suspicious of us Christians because we have persecuted them for a great deal of our history. But I can't think that is a grievous sin and something that we... Um, don't often repent for. But in this, I don't know what greater comfort, and indeed the prayer for 
my Jewish friends, for my Jewish rabbi friends, is that they would come to know our Messiah, their Messiah, because he has bore their griefs, he has suffered the affliction, he has been hated by humanity just as they have been throughout history. And even though that this has not been fulfilled, that praise from Israel has not poured forth in any huge amount, faithfully, thankfully, century over century, but no huge amount, it will, for Moses and Paul and Zechariah, assure us it will, that Israel will come to praise God for the salvation of Jesus and thereby have every tear wiped away the centuries of tears that they have suffered. Now David turns to us. He gives noticeably shorter attention to us than he does the Jews. Um, He uh, says in verse 27 and 28, And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for the kingship belongs to the Lord, for, and he rules over the nations. We can think of Psalm 2 when we encounter this text, because God's anointed king in Psalm 2 is seen both different than Yahweh, different than the Lord, but allied with him so closely. Indeed, several commentators, even commentators that actually don't really believe the Bible, um, say it's very odd because in the Psalms, the king kind of takes this, this uh, anthropomorphized uh, uh, deity character that he's almost like a god, but he's not god, and he's so tightly connected to him. And in Psalm 2, we see that God and his Messiah, God and his anointed king, will go out to battle to the nations, and there'll be the point of conflict where God delivers him. And here, um, and it speaks of God's kingship and the anointed, the Messiah's kingship, and here we see this kind of point that God delivers the king, the, his anointed one, and because of this, the, earth, the ends of the earth, all the earth will remember, remember this suffering that happened to the king And they will turn back to the Lord. They will turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations, which sounds like the Abrahamic covenant, it's actually almost precisely the same language as the Abrahamic covenant, shall worship the Lord of Israel. The God of Israel will be worshipped by remembering what happened to the sufferer. And it's because God is sovereign over the world. His kingship extends over the world. He is in control of all of history, even the suffering of his anointed one, whom he raised from the grave for our justification. And at this point, I think we fail to understand the significance of this because we need to almost put ourselves back in David's day. We think about the glories of the United Kingdom, not the British one, but the Davidic one, where Israel and Judah were united. We think of them being strong. But the issue is, is that Israel was like the geopolitical equivalent of Poland in the ancient world. 
sandwiched between two superpowers. One side the Russians, the other side the Germans, always being ran back and forth and their country being invaded over and over and over again. And the fact that this small little country with a weird little book that has prophets that do bizarre things would so grab the hold of the nations that the fact that the book even survived is a miracle. The only reason why we know about the ancient world and we have ancient documents is because archaeologists have dug them out of the ground. Except for the Bible. Except for God's holy word. It has lasted. And not only has it lasted with this little geopolitical, this little nation with the geopolitical equivalence of Poland, but it has come true. The nations worship the God of Israel. Every time tribe and tongue has come to know the God of Israel. And it should astonish us. And the mere fact, and this is a common point, but I think one that's worth meditating on, I don't indeed think it's the only evidence for Christianity, I think it is in evidence, is that the church exists, that what the book says has come true in you and in me, and we should be at awe on this. So as we close, I do want to come back to something I uh, said at the beginning and ask, why do our hearts run cold? Why does the familiarity breed complacency? I don't pretend to know the motivations of your heart. So I'll just make an educated guess based on what I see from Scripture and what I see in my own heart. In the cross, in Christ's passion, we are judged. We are examined. And we are found guilty. Because with all our Easter celebrations, with all our religious activities, we safely tuck away and put into our systematic theologies or our Bible study books a tidy picture of what the cross represents. We say, oh, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and he's risen again, and I'll go to heaven. It's true. But we make it unreal. We make it into this system of thought, into a philosophy like Kant or Hegel. But Jesus walked into a real world. He walked into a world that is full of power politics and evil and brutish people just like us. He walked into our world. He did not walk into the world of quaint liturgy 
and he did not walk into the world of nice religious sentiments. He walked into our hell. And so when we see the cross, we are judged. For we know that if God was to account our iniquities, we could not stand. How we treat our employees and how we treat our coworkers, indeed how we treat our family and friends, God would come in and judge us all. But for the precise reason it makes us uncomfortable, for the precise reason we cast it aside and make it into a tidy framework, is the precise reason to actually give us joy. Because for in that moment on the cross, God is right and just to forgive your sins. And as we experience the discomfort, we go back in and we say, yes, we are judged. Yes, I am guilty. Yes, I could not stand if God were to count my iniquities. And yes, Christ died for me. And this is why we remember the precise reason why we forget, the precise reason why we shove it away is the precise reason why we should remember. Indeed, this is what we do or should be doing every time we take communion, that there is a communion with God that's lateral or uh, vertical, and then there's a lateral communion that we are those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, every one of us in this room. And so as we leave here this morning, I pray that you will find joy and peace in this message. I pray that you will meditate on these things and consider them and ask God for you to be able to take them in anew with new eyes and a new heart that you may have joy in him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you inflame our hearts with love for you. We pray that you would inflame our hearts for Christ, our God, in that in loving you with all our hearts and with all our souls and all our minds and with all our strength and our neighbors as ourselves, we may obey your holy commands and glorify you, the giver of all things. Amen.